Redis is an in-memory object storage system that is commonly used as a cache for web applications. This core primitive of in-memory object storage has created a larger ecosystem encompassing a broad set of tools. Redis is also used for creating objects such as queues, streams, and probabilistic data structures. Machine learning systems also need access to fast in-memory object storage, and Redis AI is a newer module for supporting machine learning tasks. For serverless computing, Redis Gears allows for the execution of functions close to a Redis instance, and Redis Edge allows for edge computing with Redis. Alvin Richards returns to the show to discuss the expansion of Redis to becoming a broad suite of in-memory tools, as well as the resiliency properties of Redis and usage patterns for the tool. Redis Labs is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily, and RedisConf is a virtual conference around Redis that runs May 12th through 13th. If you're interested in Redis, you can check out RedisConf for free by going to RedisConf.com. That's R-E-D-I-S-C-O-N-F dot com. Alvin Richards, welcome back to the show. Uh, great to be here. How are you today? I'm doing great. You know, how about you? You know, it's w- week 593 of lockdown and I'm still vaguely sane, so I think I'm in good shape. Thank you. In a previous episode that you were on, we went through an overview of Redis. Could you give us a reminder of the basic use case of Redis? Great question. So for Redis, for those of you who've not come across it, is primarily an in-memory database. It was designed to deal with very low latency and high throughput traffic. So the sort of original use cases are things like session stores or leaderboards or other activities where you have a a highly volatile data where you want to look at it and analyze it quickly. As the product has matured, so have the use cases. So we have customers from financial services, healthcare, telco, who use this all for a variety of cases where they want to look at a large amount of data uh, very, very quickly with very low latencies. Does Redis sit entirely on memory or is there a disk component as well? So you could tear the way that Redis uses memory. Predominantly on the cache use cases, people just use DRAM. But what you can do with Redis Enterprise is tier the data between DRAM, persistent memory, and SSD, so that you essentially can use SSD as an extension of DRAM and therefore deal with much larger data sets, but also change the price uh, per gigabyte as well. So you can store greater data sets more cost-effectively. How have the applications of Redis evolved beyond the traditional use case, which was an in-memory object store. So that was the first way that people used it typically was just to cache objects. But how have the use cases evolved since then? The use cases have evolved in a number of ways. Some of that is just people getting successful using it as an in-memory cache and realizing they can use it for other things. Some of it's also the extensions that have been put in to Redis over time. Redis is inherently extensible. And so through the module interface, you can go and extend additional functionality. There's a lot of modules that have been created, for example, to extend the types of data structures Redis can support. Things like full text search, time series, graph, um, AI, and so on and so forth. 
But there are also extensions to Redis that allow for geo-replication across data centers. And that's a technology we call ActiveActive. And that's uh, using CRDTs or conflict-free replicated data types. And this allows you to have essentially a logical cluster that spans data centers with each one of those data centers replicating changes, allowing changes to be accepted in any data center and then moved around that global cluster so that you always get a consistent view. When is it useful to have a Redis instance beyond a single instance? Sorry, so a Redis cluster, I guess you would say. When is it useful to, to be replicating your Redis into multiple places? Well, there's two parts to scale out and they solve different parts of the problem. The first is essentially, it's not exactly true, but it's logically true, which is Redis is a single-threaded process. So there are only so many operations a second that it can process. So the first part of scale out is what's called sharding. It's the ability to take your logical data set, partition it into slots or sets, and then allow multiple Redis processes to operate across that entire data set by creating these logical slices. So that's one way you get scalability if you run the limits of a single process. Now, at the same time, you will want availability and resilience. And so what happens if a single process fails? Well, you want that data to be replicated elsewhere so that if a process fails, you still have that data in memory and you just have to deal with the failover time in order to still get access to that data. So you can get from a single Redis process you scale out horizontally by uh, partitioning or sharding the data, and then you make each one of those shards reliable by putting in replication. And when you have a multi-node Redis cluster, how do transactions work? A good question. So there are a couple of constructs in Redis that allow you to build essentially transactions with multiple operations in. And this is through the multi-statement and the watch statement. So essentially what you can do is in multi, you can build, here's a series of commands I want to execute, and they're executed as a single operation. The watch statement allows you to get a notification or to essentially fail the transaction if a key you are watching gets modified since you added that watch. So that gives you the ability to deal with a, batching up these changes into a single block that gets executed, but also notifications that the data that you're dependent on the or the keys you're dependent on uh, may have changed under the covers since you started your operation. And this allows you to build out applications where you rely on multiple operations to be executed. Before we get into some of the other data structures in, in Redis, I just want to continue talking a little bit about the clustered configuration, clustered uh, properties. Tell me about how to deploy a high availability Redis cluster. There are a couple of ways you can do it. So you can take the native open source. It's got some native clustering and high availability, and you can roll your own. And a lot of people do that because they don't mind taking on that administrative burden. And um, if you don't want the administrative burden, then obviously you could use a managed cloud service from all of your favorite cloud providers, uh, including Redis Labs. 
or if you don't want to go with a managed cloud service, you can use, we provide a Kubernetes operator, and that's another way to orchestrate the deployment of a cluster. Or you use uh, Redis Enterprise, which has not only got the built-in clustering, it's got in the, uh, the automatic failover and recovery as well, again, to simplify the operations. So the real question is, is how much do you want to take on yourself? How much do you want the automation through the product or through a service offering? And what are some of the other options for configuring a Redis cluster? Like if I'm scaling up, what are the kinds of decisions I'm going to be making across this cluster? It will come down to having a good understanding of what is the type of data you want to operate against? How many operations a second do you think you're going to need? What are the latencies that you're after for the application? And so I would always recommend everybody would build a proof of concept to understand for their particular use case, what is the ideal topology? Now, we offer things that help people do that sizing calculation so that you can set up the right number of shards, the right kind of replication to satisfy your use case. But like any tool, any technology, you know, you've got to go from the sort of generic sizing formulas that uh, any vendor or any project can give you, but to really understand what it means to you and your code and your application. So I would always recommend people actually build a mini proof of concept and actually try it out and understand what it means for their particular context. What about failure scenarios? What are the different recovery strategies in case a Redis node fails? Uh, there are a number of options. So Redis provides uh, persistence out of the box, right? Most people think of it as an in-memory cache, but it actually has persistence. There's a couple of persistence options, RDB files, AOF files. That, so there's a way of getting the data to the disk. Now, obviously, if you set up replication, then there is another copy in a secondary or a slave node. And so there's another copy of data there, and that will provide, if you're using Redis Enterprise, automatic failover if you lose that Redis process. Now, the next stage on for that is, what happens if you lose a whole availability zone or a whole data center? Well, this is where uh, the active-active technology of Redis Enterprise comes in because this essentially allows replication between clusters in different geographies. And so depending on what kind of scenarios that you are trying to defend against, you've got a sort of you know, playbook of deployment options that allow you to meet uh, ultimately what your demand is. Let's talk about some of the data structures that one can create beyond just the simple object cache. Redis has a number of different data structures that you can instantiate with it. How is Redis used for performing search? Search is super interesting, right? So we've had the module called uh, Redis Search for well, two, three years now. And we have a bunch of customers who use it for extraordinary mission-critical activities in e-commerce and in financial services. And it fits this sort of uh, set of use cases where you need some of the characteristics of full-text search, right? You, got, you want to do skip words, you want to do locality and proximity of words to each other. 
But you know, in, in Redis search, you can extend it. You can do numeric range scans. You can do geospatial queries, but all with the characteristics that you expect of Redis, which is very uh, low latency access to that data. So uh, one of the, the uh, obvious use cases that people can go read about is Gap, uh, who use Redis search as part of their inventory management system. So when you are looking for products online, it's using Redis search to figure out where is the inventory, what's closest to you, what is the best shipping method to give you the shortest possible delivery times. And so they've put that together uh, using Redis search because it allows that flexibility of looking at many different attributes of that data structure, not just uh, a single value and doing a comparison against it. There are also Redis streams, and people who think streaming, uh, streaming abstraction, they probably are thinking Kafka. How do Redis streams compare to Kafka? The Redis streams have got a couple of, I think, truly unique characteristics. One of them takes advantage of you getting very low latency in memory access. So in the normal streaming model, yes, uh, you've got data that's being fed in. Uh, you've got the ability to create consumer groups so that you can have multiple processes consume that data as it's coming in and processing it. And so Redis uh, Stream supports all of those basic things you'd expect. But on top of that, in the Redis Enterprise 6.0 release, which has just come out, uh, we support streams in active-active mode which means that you can have this geographically replicated stream and consumer groups go and processing in different data centers all in parallel, looking at a consistent copy of that data. And so that combined with the very low latency access uh, allows it to be used in a, a number of really interesting ways in not just the sort of IoT space, but you know, in telco and finance where people want to do uh, very uh, high ingestion rates with low latencies and processing of stream type data. Great, and how are Redis streams implemented under the hood? I mean, we know that the Redis in-memory object cache is mostly an in-memory system, but it can be, you can persist it to disk. How does that compare to how Redis streams are represented? Good question. So Redis has had a pub sub for many, many years. And people use that for message buses and all the sort of typical things that you'd use a pub sub model for. The challenge with pub sub is that there was no guaranteed delivery of message. There was no guaranteed order. And so one of the things that streams did was to add those concepts in so that you could restart your consumer at the last point it had got to and still get all those messages because you weren't connected, you, you, you weren't in the, the position where you would lose those messages, which is the case for PubSub. So Streams is a much more reliable implementation in order to meet those, that criteria of ensuring that you do see each one of those messages or the, each pieces of data. We actually didn't discuss how search is implemented under the hood. How much do you know about the implementation of Redis Search? Yeah, well, so Redis Search is going under a fairly large refactor. And 
And so the new version 2.0 incorporates a lot of that refactoring. And this has came back from internal discussions as well as discussions with customers. And so let me sort of frame the problem, which is in the original implementation, what Redis Search was doing was in holding all of that sort of, you know, that breakdown of the words and their occurrences and where they were into a series of internal data structures. That meant that you basically had to take your data, put it into Redis Search in order to index it. And that meant in some of our customer scenarios that they had multiple copies of the same data, it was just represented differently. And so what we're doing in Redis Search 2.0 is that we're using the native hash as the backing store of the data. And then the index is built on top of that, um, that pre-existing hash. So that allows you to add Redis Search capability to existing data by just pointing it at the hashes you want indexed. And that means that your code that then manipulates those hashes remains unchanged, but the full text search capability of the index is maintained in the background. And so we think this uh, A, reduces the footprint of how much copies of the data you have to hold, but simplifies the adoption from the developer's perspective because all the code that's maintaining that data just uses all the commands that they, uh, they've been using for manipulating the hashes. If they want to do a full text search, they then just go through the full text search query API to go and do the querying in order to then get back to the hash. So we think the sort of internal architecture allows for uh, a more efficient and effective use. It's also had this really nice side effect is that it's encapsulated search into a piece of library code that we can now embed in graph and JSON and all the other modules going down the road. Okay. How, how much uh, sharing is there between the different teams who are implementing these different data structures? Are there sub-modules in these different systems that get reused, like, you know, something that's reusable in, in the implementation of Redis streams that can be used in the impl implementation of Redis search? Uh, absolutely. And that's something that we're getting better at. I think, you know, what we try to do with the modules to begin with is to use it as a playground for people to experiment and understand how different data structures can be processed within Redis. As those modules mature, we make them available in the Redis Enterprise. And one of the, the things about maturity is ensuring that you have high quality code bases where you have the least amount of duplication because you have the least amount of bugs introduced that way. So I think as those, those modules naturally mature, some of those things come into play. And probabilistic data structures. Redis has these implemented as well. Explain what a probabilistic data structure is. So these are things like Bloom filters and Top K. The sort of, you know, the short answer is sometimes an approximation is a good enough answer. Sometimes you don't need uh, complete accuracy in order to get a meaningful response. And so, you know, you can, you can use some of these probabilistic data structures in ways that, you know, in gaming, in leaderboards, where having a good approximation uh, quickly is, is 
good for the particular use case. If you need absolute accuracy, then you need the other data structures, but there is a potential performance penalty if you're dealing with a very large data set or a very large graph of values. And so it's a trade-off. Um, there are many cases where an approximation is good enough. Can you give an example use case? That's a great question. So, like I said, things like, you know, it, it lends itself to places like leaderboards where an approximation of what that leaderboard looks like is, is probably good enough because at any instance of time, it's changing. And so an approximation is good. It's like how many likes a post has got. Does it, do, you, do you need a 100% accurate number or is the fact that it's 35 good enough? <laughs> right. And so any of these cases where you can forego accuracy to save computational costs, uh, they're worth looking at. And so these data structures, they've been, Redis has been developing these, new, these new, newer data structures throughout the years. And then more recently, there's some other systems like Redis AI is a newer system. Redis AI is a Redis module for deep learning and machine learning modules. Why did Redis start working on an AI module? Or I guess more, more accurately, a machine learning module. Yeah, a great question. So we've had a machine learning module for a while. We've got Redis Conf coming up next week. And one of the announcements is Redis AI becoming a GA module. The rationale for those modules and frankly any module is the desire to bring those speed, high performance, low latency characteristics to different domains. In AI, you know, we integrate with TensorFlow, so it's a great way to be able to process and look at that data to do some of the training, to do some of the analysis uh, by looking at data in real time. And so an alternate way of thinking about Redis is whilst it's a very high performance key value store, it's also great when you have a metric or a value or an analytic where you've got an SLA. Right, so wanting to get a finite piece of information really quickly is where Redis excels. And so that's why we have all the, all the existing data structure types, but that's why we're adding things like AI because it's just another way of bringing those qualities of having a very tight SLA on a different type of processing with a different type of data. So, what are the technical requirements for a backing storage system for my machine learning data? Why is it any different than just using a in-memory cache or using a, a database? I think it comes down to the particular use case, right? So if you think historically, training was done as a big offline process, you know, wind back the time machine, you had a big Hadoop cluster processing this data, it would crunch away, it would generate these models, and then these models would be served by a process or a technology that was closer to uh, where those models were needed. But as people have found the, as you get into sort of hyper-personalization, you need to do more and more real-time rather than batch processing. And this is where a technology like Redis and the extension of Redis AI come into play. It comes down to 
does does this answer have uh, does it have an SLA and how tight is that SLA? How quickly do you want to be able to respond to change and reprocess that data in order to uh, result in a better outcome? Can you describe the architecture of Redis AI in more detail? Uh, yep. So we work with a technology partner on the guts and internals of this, and so. What we've done is we've incorporated some of the, their core technology into the Redis ecosystem so that through the AI module, you, that particular module and those particular algorithms can get access to those, that data with all those sort of Redis-y type attributes of very low latency. And what about the API? What's the API for a machine learning developer who's interacting with Redis AI? The API is, it, it, some of it is, uh, comes down to what is your personal choice, right? So if you're using uh, TensorFlow, you know, you're going to use that tool chain in order to execute the processing in that particular type of framework. So the, the goal is to provide something as close to being as native experience for the developer while still retaining that very quick access to the data involved. So how does it integrate with the machine learning frameworks? Does it have uh, APIs in, into the frameworks themselves, or are they just language-level APIs? Uh, they're just language-level APIs. So ML was the, the first module in this space, and we learned a lot from that. From that, we sort of branched out into AI because it, we felt it, it gave a simpler way for the people who were dependent on those frameworks to get the value out of Redis and the performance that they could get out of Redis, i.e. to be able to manipulate that data faster. And how much data would somebody store in a Redis AI instance and what kind of operations would they be performing over that data? Good question. I mean, so AI is, uh, like I said, we've got Redis Conf coming up next week. The 1.0 is going GA. So I think it's early days. We do see customers who have been experimenting in a number of different and disparate use cases and industries. So, you know, hand on my heart, what are the key set of use cases? We're going to be finding out. We see what the early customers are doing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's where the sort of the, the majority of the use cases are going to ultimately be. So uh, I think it's one of these things like, Come to Redis Conf and see what people are talking about now. Come back in 12 months' time and see what people have found out in those 12 months. And I suspect that the world will change. Another newer system in Redis is Redis Gears, which is a serverless engine that's an adjunct to Redis. So this is a system for executing functions on top of the core Redis infrastructure. How does Redis Gears compare to a serverless system like AWS Lambda? Good question. We're super excited about Gears for a number of reasons. Um, and some of this is, again, it's the sort of extensibility of Redis. Sometimes you want to extend Redis, but only a small bit. And so essentially what Gears allows you to do is drop in code that runs in Redis as close to the data as possible. Um, the 1.0 is going to support Python natively, and then we're going to extend out through Java and Scala going forward. And so this helps in use cases where 
you want to do some more sophisticated processing. You don't necessarily want to do it in a Lua script, but you don't want to transfer that data from Redis across the network and process client side. And so it's got some of that, the benefits of Lambda in terms of it's serverless. You don't need to provision it, it just runs in your cluster. But it's also very different because it's manipulating the data that's already there. You don't have to transfer the data in or out in order to manipulate it. So why would I use Redis Gears instead of Lambda? I think it comes down to a couple of things, which is, do you want to program essentially in a proprietary framework, whether it's Lambda or something else? Uh, do you want to retain that code in a language that you're familiar with, like Python or Java, and you don't want to go to a scripting language you're not familiar with, like Lua? Do you want to have the, that processing function operate with very low latency because it's got access to that data and it's got the locality of the access to the data? So I think answering some of those questions get you ultimately to choose the right technology to solve your problem. There is nothing wrong with AWS Lambdas, but they've got some challenges that if you don't architect for, you may get tripped up. You may not be able to build something as performant and if performance is the key thing, then you look for alternatives. And Gears is just a, a really great alternative way of doing this. So can you explain in more detail how a Redis Gears script would execute? So like if I've got a Python script that I want to run as a gear, how is that executing? Good question. So essentially, there's two phases to this. The first is the deployment phase. So first of all is essentially registering the script understanding the dependencies because what what the cluster needs to do is ensure that the script and the dependencies are spread throughout the cluster right because when you execute the function you and you've got a sharded system where the data is partitioned that uh, function has got to be available wherever that data is available so the first part is deployment and ensuring that code is present everywhere the second part is now that the function has been registered and all the dependencies are installed and set up is now executing that function. And you know, one, one way of uh, thinking about what that gear has got to do is it's a sort of distributed map reduce, right? You've got to ensure that that function is operating across all the places where the data is present and then uh, pulling all those results back and presenting them back as a single set of results back to the client that invoked the function. And another newer feature is uh, Redis Edge. So this is a, an edge computing system. Can you explain what Redis Edge is? And, and one thing I'm curious about is what the difference between deploying Redis Edge versus just putting a Redis instance on a cluster at the edge would be. Yeah, so Redis Edge is a, a project that we did to essentially package up uh, Redis and a couple of the modules, time series and AI, so that you could deploy them, not necessarily on a super edge device, like you know a phone, but perhaps one or two levels back from that, so that they're acting as the aggregator for many of these devices. 
And so allow that the Redis edge to basically collect and manipulate uh, data on the behalf of many of those devices. And so it's a sort of, it's a packaging exercise that allows for simple consumptions for those types of models or more, uh, types of deployments, I should say. And is the, the Redis Edge database significantly different than a normal Redis database? It's essentially, depending on the configuration, but typically it's a single Redis process. So it's a very much smaller, more compact packaging. Because of the compute on the, the further away you get from the core, the compute is clearly less powerful. So you, you need to slim it down as much as possible. And so with all these different data structures and systems, have you seen some new patterns develop around how people are using Redis? Yeah, I mean, I think the great thing about talking to the community and talking to customers is, is you constantly finding out new and different ways people are using your product. And I think this is one of the, the reasons I love to go to you know conferences or talks is just to sort of hear that. Um, as I said, people would start off traditionally with session stores and that type of functionality or use case. But increasingly we see people using it for very sophisticated analytics for fraud detection, credit scoring, personalization, anywhere where you need to look at a large graph of data really quickly. And I think the sort of what's happening in terms of the industry is there's a realization that the better data you've got, the more data you can look at, uh, the better outcomes of the service or the code that you write are, because you can, you've got a better way of influencing others' behaviors, or you provide things that are, are richer and more actionable for the consumers of your service. And I think, you know, that that's kind of where the real growth of Redis will be, is the realization that we had this odd notion that data got stored on disk and you had disk access. Well, I think the notion of Redis is that all data is available all the time with ultra low latency access. And I think that becomes a very uh, significant change on how people think and operate and manipulate data and how deep insights that they can create because they're not limited to disk uh, accesses. Whenever things now memory access, things look very different. Do you know much about the cost differences between, let's say, like a gigabyte of RAM versus a gigabyte of disk space these days? You know, I'm always really good at misquoting numbers like that. But, <laughs> okay. you know, there is a significant, is it orders of magnitude? Probably, you know, disk on iron is, is cents a gigabyte, right? Now... What's happening in memory architectures is not really much has changed in the last 15 years, 20 years. You know, DRAM is DRAM. Yes, it gets faster. It's still very expensive. Intel launched persistent memory as a final GA product last year. Right. So we now have a tier between DRAM and SSD of persistent memory. And as soon as persistent memory was launched, all the DRAM manufacturers dropped their prices. Right. And so it's great having new technologies competition because it starts driving the price down. Now, is traditional disk drives going to be cheap? 
yes, they are for the foreseeable future. But if you look at what's happened with SSDs, what's likely to happen with persistent MAM and the, uh, memory and therefore DRAM, the price is going to drop. And so architecturally, I kind of, I've got to stage where I think that essentially memory is for all intents and purposes free. If it's all intents and purposes free, what can I now do with it? How does that change the problem I'm trying to solve? Now, in reality, it's not free. But if you look at the compute prices and your favorite cloud vendor, you know, look at how much memory you're getting for very little dollars. So the question is, what can you now do with that memory? You know, terabytes of DRAM are going to be really commonplace. What do you do with a terabyte of DRAM? Very interesting. What would you do? What do you think? What do you think will be some of the applications that become more feasible as RAM becomes more accessible and more cost-effective? Well, I mean, not too long ago, a terabyte relational database was vast. But, you know, I'm sure you've got a, or close to a terabyte of storage on your phone. I remember my first iPod squeezing my 100 CDs into it on my a phone I updated, I've got my entire CD collection in lossless on my phone uh, with um, uh, space left over. So I think what really happens is it unlocks the imagination of people, not just in the data that they collect, but the data they want to manipulate and how deep they want to go in that data in order to look at more results. Right, so this is why things like Redis Gears is really interesting because you can start combining search and graph and time series and look at those results in entirety in order to actually process different projections of data. So you can combine these aspects together. So perhaps a full text search drives uh, the results of that drives the first query into graph to give you those initial nodes and then you can do a graph computation on the vertices of the of those graphs in order to actually then look at a deeper set of data that you then feed into a time series right so gears is a technology that allows you to combine those intrinsic atomic modules together and so i think the, the thinking about memory as ubiquitous allows you to start thinking about the data in very different ways and what you can process. And I'm fascinated to see what people do with it. I'm truly fascinated. Yeah, same here. I just wonder what like what a- aspects of my applications would become faster. I guess everything. Well, I think speed is one of those things, but you know, we deal with humans, right? Humans have got a blink time. The other way to think about it is all the machine to machine processes, right? Can you feed more data into those other processes that are machines that are consuming that data. So I think the human aspect here is the slow part of it, right? We're the the slow organic creature in the process. The other silicon that can consume more and richer data or more augmented data may be able to do something quite radically different with it. So I know RedisConf is coming later this month. And because of the crazy times, it's a virtual conference. What has it been like organizing a virtual conference? You know, it's been 
are honestly a huge challenge for our marketing team. You know, they had their agenda, how they were going to organize it, and overnight it got ripped up and they had to start all over again. And so, yes, it's a virtual conference. We wanted to create something that was going to still be practitioners being able to tell their story for other practitioners, right? So a lot of what we've had to do is figure out how to organize those speakers to get their content in such a way that it's it's consumable in a virtual conference. So we're doing a mixture of some live events, some are recorded. We have a Ask the Expert session where you can book a session with an engineer and talk about your specific problem. So we're trying a whole bunch of things to try and engage the audience, but ensure they get high value and high quality content that, as I said, is delivered by practitioners for practitioners. So some of those talks are going to be given by Redis Labs engineers. There's people from Apple and many top tier companies who are talking about their real world experience and use case of using Redis in production. Are there any particular subjects or areas that you, you know, you're anticipating seeing covered there that you're excited about? I think there are a ton of exciting things. I mean, we've got everything from talks about Redis Roth and Carl Kingsbury, who is the famous or infamous author of Jepson, uh, talking about work he's been doing with us, proving out that module and uh, the consistency of Redis Raft, all the way through what's new in Redis 6, things like Active Active for streams. We've got all the security features like ACLs and RBAC. And then we've got a whole bunch of technology partners who are talking about how Redis is in, being incorporated into their cloud infrastructure or the technologies that they're working with. So, for example, we got a great talk by one of our partners on in-memory encryption, the guys from Injuna. And so this is a, the next generation of, of what you can do with encryption, right? Encryption at rest, solve problem. Um, encryption in transit solve problem. What about encryption in use? And so there's a lot of people who are talking about some of the kind of more future stuff, which would be super exciting to look through, as well as the concrete stuff of what can I use right now? Very interesting. You know, I as I was looking through these, the newer systems that Redis has been building, I I understood the, the licensing deliberations uh, a little bit better. I think uh, I mean there's just a lot of a lot of work a lot of features that, that you guys have been building. Does the licensing get licensing stuff get discussed at all within Redis? I think in our company and every other open source project and every open source company based on an open source project. I mean I think we're all living in even before COVID we're living in uh, interesting and challenging times which is how do you hold the values of open source about the openness and the transparency, uh, but also ensure the longevity of those projects and build a community around it? And, you know, there's a sort of natural hesitation between those characteristics and the commercialization of it. And that compounded with offering open source projects as cloud services I think I added this sort of third dimension that all the projects have had to deal with. It's not just Redis, you know, uh, Cassandra's had to go through this, Mongo's had to go through Elastic, and everybody's wrestling with how do they ensure the health of the community and longevity of the project whilst 
needing to meet some commercial criteria so that they can generate the revenue to make all of those things happen. And Redis is our own version of source available and so do many of the other vendors. And I think two, three years down the road, we will look at this time going, wow, we kind of, you know, everybody had this, this sort of idea and then we slowly coalesced back into a sort of common principle like we were, you know, five, 10 years ago. But I think it's still, a, still in flight for everybody about uh, how best to work with this. Yeah, definitely. What are the other Redis products that are being worked on right now? Good question. So one of the things we're talking about at Redis Conf, and it's free for every developer to download and use, is called Redis Insight. So back in the SQL days, people used things like Toad because they wanted a visual way to look at the data, inspect the data, run queries, and so on and so forth. So Redis Insight provides a way to look at your data inside the Redis instance, be able to visualize that if it's a graph or JSON or so on and so forth, and be able to manipulate and do things like memory analysis and look for slow operations and so on and so forth. So as a desktop tool just allows for the developer a simple way to inspect and play with the data. Cool. And the Redis Conf again is a virtual conference. What are you going to be doing at the conference? Yeah, uh, it's a virtual conference. It's uh, May the 12th, uh, free to register. What am I doing? I'm giving a couple of keynotes about some of the new products that we are excited to talk about. I'd love to tell you all about them, but I have to wait until next Tuesday. So perhaps we should have a follow-up after that. But there's some great projects that we're announcing. And I, I'm there mostly kind of to hang out in the Ask the Experts and, you know, try and hang out as much with the community as I can do. You know, in this virtual environment they've created, you can go play virtual pool with people. So perhaps you'll find me hanging out at the pool table. Okay, cool. Well, Alvin, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been great talking to you about Redis. Thanks so much. It's been great to speak to you again and be safe out there. <laughs>